Good morning. Ohayou gozaimasu. Welcome to Calvary Chapel, Iwakuni. It's great to be here with you as we gather to worship the Lord, to hear from Him, uh, hopefully uh, with hearts and desires to grow uh, in our relationship with Him. So last week we covered verses 17 through 24 in a message that I entitled, Joy in the Lord. And we looked at the details surrounding the return of the 70 that were sent out as ambassadors for the Lord. These disciples returned with great joy and excitement after seeing success on their various journeys. But Jesus realigned their focus, teaching them of a greater joy, the joy of having their names written in heaven and knowing that their sins had been forgiven, that they had a future and a hope that was secure in the Lord. Well, this week we're going to pick up where we left off and cover a portion of scripture that I'm sure many of you are familiar with. Our text is going to be Luke chapter 10 verses 25 through 37, and the message I have entitled, Won't You Be My Neighbor? Okay, Won't You Be My Neighbor? Will you all please rise to your feet in honor of God and His Word? I'm going to read through our text this morning from my Bible. I'm reading from the New King James Version of the Bible. If you're reading uh, from a different translation, uh, just do your best to follow along uh, in your own Bible. Okay, Luke continues his account of the life and the ministry of Jesus with the following in verse 25. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? What is your reading of it? So he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered rightly. Do this and you will live. But he, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Then Jesus answered and said, a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a certain priest came down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite. When he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. On the next day, when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said to him, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. So, which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And he said, he who showed mercy on him. Then Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you for uh, this opportunity to open up our Bibles, Lord, to hear from you, to uh, really open up uh, our hearts to your word and what you would have to say to us today. Um, Lord, we ask that you would just prepare our hearts. I pray as well that uh, while we look at this portion of Scripture that may be familiar to us, many of us have heard of the parable of the Good Samaritan, and it's part of even our uh, English uh, vocabulary to call someone a Good Samaritan. Um, So we're familiar, uh, but Lord, give us eyes to see what your Spirit would desire to say to us today. Give us ears to hear. We ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. 
Now, I know that I run the danger of dating myself and yourself, but who here ever sat down and watched an episode of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood? Show of hands. Okay. All right. Okay. Good. Okay. Anybody here have absolutely no idea what I'm talking about? It's okay. There was people in fervor service too. Okay. That's good. All right. You know, I, I figured with the Japanese brothers and sisters, perhaps some of our younger Marines and sailors and our youth, that there would be at least a few that were clueless to who Mr. Rogers was. Mr. Rogers, uh, Fred Rogers, was an actor. Uh, he played the part of Mr. Rogers on a 30-minute educational children's television series that ran for over 30 years in the U.S., starting back in the 60s, continuing on to the early 2000s. And at the opening of each show, Mr. Rogers would enter into the screen via the front door of his house, greeting the kids and singing the song, Won't You Be My Neighbor? Um, And I'm going to spare you all from trying to sing it to you. Uh, But it is a familiar and catchy tune that Mr. Rogers sang at the opening of each of his programs. In the song, Mr. Rogers invites his audience to join with him as a neighbor, asking them, would you be mine? Could you be mine? Won't you be my neighbor? In our text this morning, we're going to look at the topic of what it means to be a neighbor. Mr. Rogers is quoted as saying, Neighbors are people who are close to us and close to our hearts. And while I understand Mr. Rogers is not looking to define terms and be dogmatic about what a neighbor is or ways in which we can describe a neighbor, in our text this morning, a certain lawyer was looking to do just that. As we go through our text this morning, we're going to look at a couple of questions that were posed by this certain lawyer and Jesus' response to each question. And in true rabbinical form, Jesus would often respond to various questions presented to him with a question of his own. And such is the case in our text this morning. The lawyer will ask a question and then Jesus will respond with a question of his own. And this tactic allowed Jesus an opportunity to get at the heart of of the issues, to flip the script on those that were coming to him with really disingenuous questions, only seeking to trap Jesus or to justify themselves, as we'll see was such the case with this certain lawyer. So let's look once again at our opening verse where we hear the first question posed by this certain lawyer in verse 25. It says, and behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him saying, teacher, What shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, this is an important question, you guys, a question whose answer has eternal consequences to it. But before we uh, look to try and answer this question, let's try and set the stage for what's really going on here. Remember in last week, if you were with us last week, okay, in last week's study, how Jesus rejoiced in the Spirit, giving thanks to the God the Father for how he had hidden certain truths about eternity and, and the way to have your name written in heaven and about knowing God the Father. Jesus said in Luke ten twenty one, you can look it up there. Or we'll have it up on the screen. It says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and revealed them to babes. Jesus was talking about the things that pertain to eternal life, to the things pertaining to having your name written in heaven, to knowing the Father and developing a deep, personal, intimate relationship with the Father. And Jesus said this to a large group of followers, not just to the 70 disciples or the 12 disciples. We know this because in verse 23 of the text last week, we're told that Jesus turned and addressed his disciples privately 
after this saying. And so there's this, uh, you know, burst forth of proclamation, and then he turns privately to his disciples and addresses them after this um, declaration. And so evidently, this uh, outburst of joy where Jesus praised the Father, it was said for all the masses to hear. And I think what Jesus said about the Father hiding things from the wise and prudent must have caught the ear of this particular lawyer who was amongst the crowd. Now we have to understand something about the crowds that were gathering together around Jesus by this time. They were a mixed crowd. Yes, there were genuine followers and believers in the Lord, disciples, but there were also those who were there just along for the ride that wanted to take advantage of the opportunity to see something amazing, to get a free lunch or, you know, just to be wowed. And there were skeptics as well, religious leaders who were threatened by Jesus and the authority he spoke with, the miraculous works that he did. I think we will see that this lawyer wasn't necessarily there with the best of intentions, and it would seem that he was there to perhaps spy on Jesus, to see what he could do to entrap Jesus in his words or in his actions, that he may discredit him. And I'll explain why I think that later and why I believe the text supports that. But I think Jesus' exclamation of joy to the Father really struck a nerve with this guy because it really was a description of himself. You see, as a lawyer, a most likely a scribe, he would be considered an expert in the field of law. Now, not civil law or criminal law like we may think of today, but rather these men were experts in the Mosaic law. Okay, These people were well studied. They were trained up in the Holy Scriptures. They were considered by most as the wise and the prudent of society. None dared to challenge the wisdom and the understanding of the scribes when it came to the Mosaic Law and how to live according to it. And so I think this idea of things pertaining to eternal life and knowing God the Father being hidden from people like him was an affront to him. And he couldn't just sit there and let this go unchallenged, unquestioned. And so the lawyer, he stands up uh, within this setting and he addresses Jesus saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now we know that this question was disingenuous based upon the details and the verbiage that's used here by Luke in this account. Verse 25 tells us that he asked this question with the intent to test Jesus. Okay? The Greek word that's used here is very significant. Okay? There are actually two different Greek words that can be translated as the English word test there that are used in the Bible. Okay? There is the Greek word dakamazo, which is used when speaking about testing or trying something to bring out the good in something or someone, to bring something to purity. Okay? You test metals to pull out the, the stuff that's no good, the impurities, that it might be become pure, right? Then there is the Greek word pirazo, which is used to contrast, okay, to speak of testing or tempting aimed at causing us to fall or to solicit us to sin. God is one that will often test us, and it's that word dakamazo, with the heart and intention that we would grow, that we would mature in our walk with him. James writes about how the testing of our faith, it produces patience, and how patience will work in us to bring to us a place of maturity, uh, of being perfect, of lacking nothing. But in contrast, Satan is the one who tests us or tempts us, pirazo, 
Okay? God does not tempt us, desiring that we would fall. That's the work of the enemy. Okay? And that's why Matthew refers to the devil as the tempter when giving his account of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. There in Matthew chapter 4, verse 3, it's that Greek word, pirazo. The Greek word used here in our text this morning is the Greek word, pirazo. Okay, the lawyer was wanting to test Jesus to try and get him to fall, not to see if he was genuine or if he was the real deal. Further evidence of this lawyer's heart is seen down in verse 29, where we see that the lawyer's intentions were really just to justify himself. It wasn't, he wasn't really looking to learn or to receive from the Lord. Now, another important thing for us to realize and understand is the error in the lawyer's thinking. Not only was his heart in the wrong place in asking the question, but we also need to understand that the question in and of itself does not have an answer as it is posed. We don't do anything to inherit eternal life. And the lawyer should have known this based upon his very own wording. One does not do anything to earn an inheritance. Okay? An inheritance is given to an heir. Okay? It is not something that you do. You don't do anything. You must be an heir. Okay? If you want to get an inheritance, you have to be an heir. Our salvation is by grace, through faith, not of works, as Paul clearly lays out in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. We don't do anything. Okay? To inherit eternal life, you must be a son or daughter of the Lord. You must be a child of God. Becoming a child of God requires faith in Jesus Christ. You cannot know the Father unless you know the Son, as we noted last week in our text. So you must receive Jesus Christ into your life as both Lord and Savior. John chapter 1 uh, says this, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but God. Okay? No amount of good works or deeds will grant us access to the Father. We cannot do things to inherit eternal life. We inherit eternal life by being a child of God. And we come, become a child of God by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. Amen? Amen. Now, though this question is disingenuous and the lawyer's thinking is totally upside down and thinking he can do anything to inherit eternal life, Nonetheless, Jesus entertains the lawyer's question and replies with a question of his own. Read with me verse 26. He said to him, speaking of Jesus, he's speaking to the lawyer. What is written in the law? What is your reading of it? Jesus, knowing who this man was and that he was an expert in the Mosaic law, he responds to this lawyer's question about inheriting eternal life by asking him what the law says and what his reading of it was. Basically, Jesus was asking what the lawyer's interpretation of the Mosaic law was and what it led him to believe about inheriting eternal life. Now, what Jesus does here might be confusing to some, so I want to break this down. I want to explain. On the surface, it may seem like Jesus is saying that the answer to inheriting eternal life is found in the law, that inheriting eternal life comes through the law. But that is not what Jesus is trying to point out here. Jesus sent this lawyer back to the law, not because the law saves us, but because the law shows us that we need to be saved. Okay, there's a big difference. 
Paul writes in Galatians how we know that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. Galatians 2.16 teaches us that. Romans chapter 3 teaches us likewise, stating, therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. You see, the law is used to reveal to us that we are sinners. We all fall short. The law condemns us all and shows us our need for a Savior to save us from our sins. Again, Paul writes in Galatians, but the Scripture, and when he says Scripture, he's speaking about the Old Testament law. Okay? The Scripture has confined all under sin that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Verse 24 of Galatians 3 says, Therefore the law was our tutor, our, our schoolmaster, our teacher, okay, to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. See, the purpose of the law is to bring us to Christ, to show us our desperate need for Christ to forgive us our sins, to grant to us his righteousness because our righteousness is like filthy rags. It simply cannot measure up to God's perfect standard. And so Jesus sends this lawyer back to the law, not because the law is going to save him, not because the law is going to allow him to inherit eternal life. He sends him back to the law to see really if the lawyer truly understands the purpose of the law and how it applies to inheriting eternal life. So let's read verse 27 and see how the lawyer answers Jesus's question. So he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. We'll pause right there. Listen, the lawyer gave a perfect textbook answer to Jesus' question. He truly was an expert in the law and was able to accurately summarize the totality of the law in his response. The lawyer quotes from two different sources from the Old Testament in his response. First, he quotes from what's referred to as the Shema. Uh, it's found in Deuteronomy chapter 6, this particular part, verse 5, where it says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. He then adds a quote from the second half of Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18 which states, you shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. The lawyer properly summarized the entirety of the law in two simple commands. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. And this is the correct answer, okay? This lawyer would get an A plus, okay, on a Bible quiz, all right? Jesus would give the same answer himself, when asked about the greatest commandment. Later in Matthew's gospel, we read a record is given of a time where Jesus was confronted by a certain lawyer that asked him the question, teacher, which is the great commandment uh, in the law? And Jesus' response was this, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. And so the lawyer knew his stuff. Okay? The lawyer knew the proper response. Love God. Love others. But knowing the answer in your head 
is not the same as knowing it in your heart, and it is certainly not the same as fleshing it out through our hands and our feet in action. And this is where the lawyer fell short. He knew the answer in his head, but he never really allowed it to penetrate his heart or to work itself out through his life. He was unable to admit his own lack of love for both God and his neighbor. And again, this is clearly seen in Luke's commentary about this lawyer was as he was seeking to justify himself. The law requires a perfect love, a complete love, a total love of God and of your neighbor, a love that demands you give all of yourself. Your whole heart, your whole soul, your whole mind, your all of your strength, okay, all of it given in love to the Lord and to others. This, of course, is an impossible task. Only God can love completely like this. Only God demonstrated his, this kind of love in giving his all for us, sending his son, Jesus Christ, to die in our place. God demonstrated his own love, okay? This all-encompassing heart, soul, mind, and strength kind of love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This lawyer knew the answer, but he fell short of living out the answer. Let's read verse 28 to see how Jesus responds to the lawyer's answer. Verse 28 says, And he said to him, You have answered rightly. Do this, and you will live. Jesus' response was basically, You're correct. Well done. You know, Now go and do it, and you'll live. My, my paraphrase. Okay? But the problem is it's an impossible task. None but God can love like this. None can fully keep the law. You see, in order to do what Jesus is commanding here, the lawyer would have to keep the entirety of the law without ever faltering. Galatians chapter 3 verse 10 states, For as many as of the works of the law are under the curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. Okay? If you want to try and keep the law, you have to keep every bit of the law or else you will be condemned. You will be cursed to judgment. For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all, James chapter 2, verse 10 tells us. If you can't keep it all, if you fall short in just one little area, it's the same result as if you failed every single one of the laws. What Jesus commands of this lawyer was impossible. Let's see how the lawyer tries to wiggle himself out of this responsibility. Take a look at verse 29 and the lawyer's second question he poses in response to Jesus. But he, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Instead of falling at the feet of Jesus and pleading for mercy because he understood the magnitude of what was required and he understood that he could never accomplish it, the lawyer instead tried to justify himself. That word justify, uh, as it's used here, it means to bring out the fact that a person is righteous. The lawyer understood the righteous requirements of the law and instead of humbling himself and admitting that he had no chance of meeting that requirement, Instead, he sought out a loophole in the system to try and acquit himself of this responsibility. Instead of focusing upon himself and whether or not he had fulfilled the law of loving the Lord uh, and loving his neighbor as himself, he sought to draw the focus upon the definition of what a neighbor truly is. Let's define our terms, uh, is basically what the lawyer is saying. 
sure, you know, I, I've loved my neighbor as myself. It all just depends on how you define a neighbor. If, if neighbor means people that are close to me and people that are nice to me and good to me, people that are my friends, people that I spend time with and hang out with, then, then yeah, of course, I've loved those people, right? If we define neighbor like Mr. Rogers and believe a neighbor is someone that's close to us and close to our hearts, then the lawyer could potentially say, yeah, I've done that. Of course, I love the people that are close to my heart. This lawyer was trying to justify himself to prove that he was righteous and had fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law, not by his above-board actions, but by his very limited and narrow interpretation of the law. And this is something that happens all the time, even today. People believe they are good and will always look to define what that means in order to make their own actions acceptable. Listen, the truth of the matter is people don't like to be called sinners. <laughs> they want to believe they are morally right. They want to believe that they are a good person. I'm sure you've heard people say this before. Maybe you yourself have said this before. I'm a good person, right? I've never killed anyone. You know, I've never cheated on my spouse. I do my best to treat others the way I want to be treated. I'm a good person, right? Anybody heard anybody say something like that before? Yeah, and describing themselves? Sure. And so, you know, when we make up our own interpretations of what it means to be good or to be righteous, it's easy to meet those requirements. If your definition of righteousness is, I'm not as bad as, you know, the person over there, or, you know, I'm better than most, or, you know, my good outweighs the bad, well, if that's what it means to be righteous, then most of us can meet that standard, right? I mean, it's easy to look out and, and find others that appear to be worse off than us and compare ourselves to them. It's like, well, I'm better, definitely better than this person over here. But the problem is we don't get to be the one to define our terms. We're not the ones that get to make up the standard. If the standard were left up to our interpretation, we'd all be righteous because we'd all think up of a way to justify ourselves and make us look better, better than what we really are. That's just our natural tendency. Okay? But God is the one that has established the standard. God is the one that has set the limits for what it means to be righteous. God's righteous standard is not better than most. Okay? It's not, you know, better than that guy over there. No, God's righteous standard, righteous standard is perfection. In his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus exclaimed, Therefore you shall be perfect just as your Father in heaven is perfect. That's the requirement. And the context in which Jesus said these things was after he had torn down the popular interpretations of what others had said about what it meant to follow the law. You've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you should not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Furthermore, it has been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give him a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who's divorced commits adultery. Again, you've heard that it was said... To those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all. 
neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. He would continue, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you not to resist an evil person, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Jesus makes it clear that we can't define the terms ourselves. Okay, We can't just go by what other people say. You've heard it said this, you've heard it said that. No. We must look to the Lord in his perfect standard. We may be able to say we've never murdered anyone, but can we say we've never been angry with someone without a cause? Well, it depends on what you mean by without a cause. You know, we're the lawyers, okay? Let's just be honest, right? Okay? We're, we're just like that. Let's define our terms. What do you mean without a cause? Because I, I think I had a good reason. You know, I was angry with that person because I don't like them, you know? So there's my cause, you know? So it wasn't without a cause. And we want to justify ourselves. We may be able to say that we've never committed adultery, but can, but can we say we've never looked upon another in lust? Can we say we've never sworn before? Can we say that we've resisted an evil person and been able to turn the cheek in each and every situation? Can we say that we love our enemies and do good to those who hate us and bless those who curse us? Oh, bless their heart. Yeah, I know what that means. <laughs> I'm not from the South, but I know what that means. <laughs> it ain't that. <laughs> When we see things as God sees them, all of us inevitably fall short. The scriptures attest how we all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We cannot meet the righteous requirement of the law, and that is why we need Jesus. Paul the Apostle attests of how God made him who knew no sin, speaking of Jesus, to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him, in Christ. When Jesus went to the cross, he exchanged our sins for his perfect righteousness so that we could one day stand before God and he will not see our sin, but he will see the holy righteousness of Jesus. Romans 3 teaches us that the righteousness of God is revealed through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. The only way to meet the righteous requirement of perfection of the law is to put your faith in the completed work of Jesus Christ upon the cross of Calvary when he took your sins upon himself and he offered up his holy righteousness in exchange to all and on all who would believe. That's the only way, man. Now, unfortunately, this lawyer did not want to humble himself and beg for mercy from God. Instead, wanting to justify himself, he looked to interpret and define the terms in such a way as to make himself look good. But let's see how Jesus responds to this lawyer's question about who his neighbor is in verses 30 through 36. Then Jesus answered and said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves, who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a certain priest came down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, when he arrived at that place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him and bandaged his wound, pouring on oil and wine, and he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. 
On the next day, when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said to him, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. So, he turns to the lawyer and asks, Which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? Jesus responds to this lawyer's question about who his neighbor is with what's commonly referred to as the parable of the Good Samaritan. Hey, many of you have probably heard this before. Um, now, whether or not this is meant to be a parable, I am not certain. Oftentimes in the Gospels, the authors of the various accounts will start out a parable by mentioning Jesus was speaking to them in parable. And by in a parable, he spoke to this. And through a parable, he did this. And, and we don't have any mention of that. There's no uh, indicator here to make us think that this is a parable. But a lot of people do look at this and consider it to be a, a parable, a story that Jesus was telling. Okay? Whether or not it is, I can't be 100% certain. And really, regardless of the true nature of this account of the Good Samaritan, whether it's a parable or whether it was a real-life event that happened, the point Jesus is making is quite clear. Jesus tells of a man who was attacked on a dangerous roadway leading down to Jericho. He was attacked by thieves, stripped of his clothing, beaten, left for dead, and there, uh, left there on the side of the road. Along came a priest, saw the man, passed by on the other side, didn't do anything. Okay? Along came a Levite, he did likewise, nothing. Okay? And then came along a Samaritan, and he does something that would have been a complete surprise to every listener of Jesus's that day. Samaritans and Jews did not get along whatsoever. Okay? They were true enemies of one another. Jews despised the Samaritans. They saw them as some sort of half-breed. Okay? Uh, Samaritans looked down upon the Jews as a holier-than-thou bunch of hypocrites, and they did not get along whatsoever. This Samaritan, he sees the man, presumably a Jew, left for dead, and he had compassion upon him, came to him, bandaged his wounds, gave him oil and wine for medicinal purposes, set him upon his own donkey, and brought him to a facility where he could be cared for and tended to. He stayed the night with the man. In the end, he paid not just for that night's lodging, but left extra funds in order to cover any further expenses, assuring the innkeeper that if the, uh, his expenses were greater than what he had left, he would return and pay the man in full at a later date. And then at the conclusion of this account, Jesus turns to the lawyer and asks him a better question than what the lawyer had asked Jesus. The lawyer asked, who is my neighbor? But Jesus asked the lawyer, which of these three, okay, the priest, the Levite, or the Samaritan, do you think was a neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? You see, the lawyer wanted to limit the scope by limiting his interpretation of who his neighbor is. But Jesus opens it up wide, basically challenging the lawyer with the question of, well, to whom can you be a neighbor? Your neighbor is anyone that you could possibly be a neighbor to. Okay, that's anyone who's in need, anyone, regardless of whether they're your friend or your enemy, who could be ministered to with the love of God, the compassion of the Lord, anyone who's in need of the mercy of God, that is a neighbor. The lawyer wanted to limit himself and his responsibility, but Jesus, through this account of the Good Samaritan, he opens up the scope fully to any who are in need of mercy, which quite honestly is each and every one of us. We all need the tender mercies of God poured out upon us. Well, the Samaritan responds to Jesus, and Jesus gives a final command to the lawyer in our final verse. Let's take a look at verse 37. We'll wrap this all up. And he said, 
I believe somewhat reluctantly, he who showed mercy on him. Then Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. In response to Jesus' question about which of the three were a neighbor to the man who fell among the thieves, the lawyer seemingly could not bring himself to say the Samaritan. Okay, oh my goodness, no way he's going to say that. So he just says, well, he who showed mercy on him. And that must have been difficult for the lawyer to hear and to say. He wanted to limit his scope of who his neighbor was, but Jesus opened wide the scope, teaching that his neighbor is anyone to whom he could show mercy towards. Jesus' response to the lawyer was one final command to him, go and do likewise. Jesus sends this lawyer out to go and show mercy to all around him. And that word mercy, it means to show compassion or active pity towards someone. Mercy has been described as the application of grace. Being merciful is when we don't respond how we typically would, and instead we apply grace to the situation, grace to the individual. Listen, we could all use some mercy, okay? We could all use the application of God's grace in our lives. And therein lies a bit of the challenge in Jesus' explanation Uh, or excuse me, exhortation and his commandment to go and do likewise. We all know we need mercy, right? We all know we need grace. But will we actually go out and show mercy? Will we actually go out and apply grace? And, And I think deep down in our own hearts, when we're honest with ourselves, most often than not, we usually know what's right. We know what we should be doing what we shouldn't be doing. We know what we should do, we ought to do. The question is, will we actually go and do what we know to be is right? That was the challenge to the lawyer, and that is our challenge as well. Yeah, he knew the answer, but would he put it into action? And I imagine many of you could probably get A pluses on Bible quizzes, okay? But are you going to put that truth into action? Are you going to live out these truths in your day-to-day? I pray that we would know uh, what God would have for us to do and that we would be conduits of the love and and the mercy and the grace of God. And I'll leave you with the following from the book of Micah. Micah writes this. He says, He, speaking of God, He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? Micah 6, 8. May we be those who do what we know to be right, those that love mercy and share it with others, those who walk humbly with the Lord our God. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this portion of scripture that we can learn from and glean from. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, Lord, because without him, we would be hopeless. Lord, there is nothing that we can do to inherit eternal life because eternal life does not come by following the works of the law, Lord, but it comes through placing our hope and faith in the completed work of Jesus Christ. And Lord, I pray that everyone here in this place has made that decision today, Lord, that none here are still waiting to make that decision, but they've all placed their hope and faith in you. Lord, they have become children of God, and as such, they will inherit eternal life. And Lord, I pray that we would go 
as mercy and compassion and love and grace has been poured out upon us, Lord, I pray that we would go out in like manner and do as you have done to us. May we live out our faith. May we live out what it means to be a child of God. May we be pictures and examples of you and what you've done for us to the world around us. We ask, give us strength to do so by your spirit. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.